0: Hi everybody, welcome to In the Trenches with Andrew Taylor. This episode, I interviewed Dr. Sarah McMillan. And Sarah is high energy, and she's extremely bright, which you will pick up quickly um, in the interview. Every time Sarah and I get together, there's never enough time to finish our conversation, and you'll see why. She's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to education and developmental psychology. In this interview, I asked Sarah to get into the weeds. I asked her to, as she says, nerd out on all of this stuff, and she does, and it's really, it's really good information, and I think you guys will really enjoy it. Um, a little bit about Dr. McMillan. She earned her bachelor's degree in English from Colby College and was a collegiate athlete and team captain there. She also holds a master's degree in English and history from Boston College and a doctoral degree in developmental and counseling psychology from Boston University, which we talk about. Sarah taught English at Boston College and has been an adjunct member of the clinical faculty at Boston University, teaching graduate level courses in child and adolescent development, educational assessment and intervention, and young adult vocational and identity development. Along with her husband, Don, they run the McMillan Education Group, a consulting group who has helped families worldwide with independent boarding and day school, college, crisis planning, and graduate program planning. Thank you for joining. Please enjoy my interview with Dr. Sarah McMillan. Sarah McMillan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Nice to be here.
0: Hey, I want to start by talking about your doctorate in developmental psychology, but more importantly, and I think the most important thing we can take from this interview, is you tell everybody how you keep your Chuck Taylor Converse sneakers so clean.
1: Well, it's kind of a secret, right? And I only tell my very best friends about it, and so that means that you must be one of my very BFFs. Um, first of all, I want to admit that I don't actually keep them as clean as that one time you saw me with sparkly ones. I actually take (laughs) a lot of pride in having messed up ones, right? Kind of shows my journey. Um, but if you want to share it with the audience, magic eraser, not the way you do it though, Andrew.
0: I was just following your advice. I, I was... (laughs) Okay, so the magic eraser for all the white parts mm-hmm. and then the shoelaces?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you can use a tied pen, but let's go back to the magic eraser because it was sort of your version of mansplaining cleaning <laughs> shoes, right? <laughs> you just overdid it. You don't need to muscle it. It takes finesse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, anyway. Okay. I would probably need a visual aid for that
0: seriously I for those listening I ran into Sarah at a conference a few months ago her sneakers were spotless and mine were not and I was like how do you do this so she had it all dialed in like a science and I went in the store and got everything and apparently did it wrong but my sneakers look a lot better so all right, so okay, to the serious stuff. You are you have a doctorate in in developmental and counseling psychology, and I'd love to start there. Can you explain to our listeners what the developmental psychology piece is and how that can frame our conversation today?
1: Sure. So, um, I, actually, it's a it's a great question. So, I, when I started doing graduate work, I'd already kind of been a perpetual student. I'd actually done. Um, master's level work in liberal arts. I had been a teacher when I started my career. And so I went back and I did a dual degree in history and English. And I was actually about to start a doctoral degree um, in social history. And then I had to, for financial reasons, go back and and put a lot more muscle into work, like little kids. And uh, I was a principal of a school for a while. And then as I was kind of watching kids and families in that role, After having been in education a long time, I just started thinking, how can I understand better how families struggle, why they struggle, what kids run into that feels some kids like, uh, you know, the bottom dropped out. For other kids, it's just, you know, a stub toe. And so I started kind of thinking, I I, want to redirect my next kind of four-way into academic work. And so I was looking around and I saw some counseling psychology degrees and, and I did a master's level degree in that. And then I really realized, like, I didn't want to be looking at children, adolescent, and young adult struggles as kind of fixed morbidity or fixed psychopathology. I sort of wanted to frame it more as Um, kind of dynamic and evolving and unfolding, because that's what young children, adolescents, and, and, and young adults are doing. They're kind of unfolding. And I didn't have the right language for it, and I didn't really understand how it could fit in psychology, and I was almost kind of ready to walk away from it, as I had been doing a lot of sort of more clinical psychology and counseling psychology in my master's level work. And then I discovered a degree at Boston University, which was a dual degree in developmental and counseling psychology. And I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So the the best way I would describe it, Andrew, is developmental psychology in terms of practitioner's work, not just the theory of human development, which is sort of my love, my my nerding out love, but the practitioner's work, it's just more, it's more hopeful, it's more optimistic, because it's grounded in this sort of power, uh, the organismic power of development, of change. It, you know, it's sort of the, the premise of it is that we're constantly changing. And if we're constantly changing, then why can't we change toward good, toward better outcomes? Why can't we harness that energy of change to essentially move past and through and sometimes around the things that get in our way? And that just fit my personality better, I guess. So that's a long-winded that. way of saying, that's why I wanted to do that. Um, yeah. But it just seemed to fit me.
0: I love that. It It sounds like it's a more optimistic... Uh, or just maybe yeah a little more optimistic approach rather than you have a diagnosis you have a disease and and we're going to tackle that you, you know that more of this is a process for all of us and there's a lot of hope in that yeah. I like it okay yes I tend to when you and I meet I tend to just sit back and listen <laughs> and I want to <laughs> do the same here I also want to give you some direction for our conversation. And we've already had a lot of really fun conversations about what we're going to talk about today. But I think maybe, you know, we want to talk about higher education. Um, We want to talk about education in general. And we want to talk about screen time. I think screen time is our best spot. And I do want you to nerd out. I want you to walk us through the developmental challenges that go with the current screen time problem. Now, it's, as we're recording this, we're in the thick of COVID, um, mm-hmm. but I, w- I want you to talk generally and maybe, you know, also your thoughts on the current situation with COVID, but more generally, I want to understand what developmentally is happening to these young people who are getting screens yeah. all day long.
1: Yeah. Awesome. So I, I had... Um, been kind of poised or positioned to, to, un, to unleash sort of a series of blogs on this very issue. And I'd come out of the last time where we, where we were exchanging tips on chucks uh, at NATSAP, mm-hmm. I was really thinking about, okay, now we're finally at this place where we have a full generation of young adults who have grown up online and who have grown up without knowing anything other than creating social connections for good or bad through screen time. So we actually now have some really robust research that shows us the developmental implications and the outcomes of of screen time kind of abuse, but also just even casual screen time, kind of what it does. Uh, So I was already coming out of NATSAP, I was pretty psyched. And I had a, a, a series of blogs all teed up and I was in, in the overarching title was OK Boomer. And yeah. um, I admit I'm one of the last uh, years of the boomer generation. I'm that old. Um, and I kind of relish that, um, that title these days because uh, I wanted to kind of say, like, hey, I, I don't want to be that old person who says, remember, back in the day. I don't know if you um, knew the uh, the Dana Carvey Saturday Night Live back in my day, old grumpy old man.
0: Yes, you know, so right?
1: Yeah, right. So, so yeah. I was thinking, like, I'm gonna write, I'm gonna write the grumpy old man series of blogs, and basically, it would be kind of making fun of us for saying, you know, back in my day, we did horrible, terrible things, and we liked it. Mm -hmm. no we didn't like it but but sort of to some degree um there was there was sort of a, a developmental logic to the the hardships that we sort of um make fun of having nostalgia about as we get older um maybe because there's some wisdom to that maybe we look back and say you know what that was terrible when I was going through it but it actually created something in me developmentally that made me better prepared, not only to manage life or survive it, but actually to thrive in it and to go back to that sort of optimistic framework of developmental psychology, you know, we we really do get to see how complex the human condition is when we recognize that the very opposite of those things that cause us such distress are such moments of beauty and joy and intimacy and connection. So... Yeah, there's some really good science that says, and now we've, we've really, we've fleshed it out in this research that says, when we're trying to essentially do what we're meant to do as a species, which is with each kind of phase of development, master certain types of developmental skills and each one, theoretically, is supposed to be the foundation for our ability to master the next set of developmental skills successfully. And so we're kind of, we kind of have now these voids of skill development. And it's, again, another thing I love about developmental psychology, because instead of psychopathology, when we send a kid to a place like Pure Life Espiro, we're seeing... Hey, we're not pointing at severe mental illness most of the time. Sometimes it's there, and we're not foolish about that, and we have the clinical training to identify and treat it, thank God. But we're often just seeing young people who are ill-equipped to manage the demands of their environment, and we can trace that void back developmentally. So um, as I was starting to think about, okay, what does screen time do to us that isn't great, but what does it also deprive us of that we really need in order to build these neurocognitive features of functioning, right, these emotional, social skills that are so critical? So I was about to say, okay, everybody, time to get real. This isn't a moral issue. This isn't, you know, about our kids are bad kids because they watch too much or they spend too much time on social media or too much time chasing gaming or whatever it is online. Um, that, that this is serious stuff. It has serious consequences for how they are experiencing their world. And there not only is a correlation between these, this increase in despair diseases, Right, and screen time, they are actual causal links now, and we're, we're seeing it in everything from emotional and social skill development, but also to just how our brains are hardwired. So I was starting to write this series about here are four or five areas scientifically that we know we need these things to happen in childhood and adolescence, and they're not happening now, um, and then what did we have? COVID, which said, guess what? We're going to spend the next however many months or possibly now a year or more most of it mm, sort of trying to figure out how to live in front of a screen so i thought maybe i won't choose to do that now maybe i'll put that on for a little while um but i also feel like COVID has sort of provided even more room for thought and it's not all negative like that's again the beauty of developmental psychology is it's, it's inherently optimistic. It's inherently about opportunity and possibility. And COVID has shown us some of those as well.
0: Okay, so I I really like the developmental approach to it. And I haven't thought of it that way, um, up until this conversation. And so I think that developmentally, what are you seeing? What is this doing? Like, more specifically, what are the characteristics? Well, it's not characteristics, right? We're not talking about, I like how you said, it, it's not a moral battle here. It's just developmentally black and white. Like you are going to lose these things if we don't get a better understanding or wrap our heads around what all this screen time means for young yeah. people and us, yeah. you know, yeah. but young people yeah. whose brains are developing yeah. what at 26 were supposedly developed, right? yeah in my limited experience so it 's not just that we are it 's that we are interrupting the developmental phase and that 's i I loved how you said it, and I see that all day long in in the clients that come to my program that we 've worked with together and and it is they are not inherently bad kids or that they are not inherently sick or mentally ill developmentally, something was missed, and they need we need to kind of get back to a very basic roots of building developmentally and i love I love how you put that so so yeah, what for the family out there that's like I don't really see the problem with this much screen time? What's the problem with this much screen time?
1: Yeah, so um, so I I was sort of when I was thinking about how can I share this in a way that isn't gonna be like ridiculously dry and boring, and so I was sort of thinking, well, I would break it down into kind of four things that we really are meant as a species. And believe me, the species is supposed to be evolving all the time and technology is creating other evolutionary forces. And again, not all for bad, right? For sure. But but like anything in development in that organism, an organism that is injured is meant to it adapt and when it adapts that organism grows an organism that is never injured never challenged it literally stops growing okay so that's like the 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 sort of previous generation of helicopter parents which you know sort of conflated good parenting with making sure my child never struggles right that's arrested development that means i'm never going to be able to have the opportunity to grow because you're depriving me of that. What, what screen time does is um, there's actually a lot of gray area in, in what it's doing developmentally. It's not, it's not all about how much. Obviously, a, way too much is terrible. And I mean, our kids who spend all night awake on, online doing things, and that's going to have really detrimental effects to all sorts of things from sleep hygiene to academic performance to cognitive functioning, all of it. Um, but just in terms of when we're trying to um, when we're trying to imagine how a baby goes from literally its gaze only being between its own eyes and its mother's face, right? That, that's how our species was was wired. And as that baby's sight improves, its world literally enlarges. And that developmental task for a child, and really even through middle to late adolescence, is literally trying to figure out where do I begin and end in this phenomenological, big, fancy, jargony word, but basically what it means is the natural world, the objective world, the three-dimensional world that we all inhabit. So in developmental psychology, a lot of this is about saying, okay this is what's called theory of mind or theory theory which means okay i bump into a boundary really you know i'm a little kid and i realize like oh i can't fly um i fall down i hurt myself i realize i probably shouldn't do that again okay that's actually um an integrative kind of developmental experience right i feel it physically i feel it emotionally I connect with my mother when I cry, right? I have all of these experiences, which are pretty intense and they actually shape our brains. So I'm this huge evangelist of things like wilderness therapy because for our kids who don't live in that natural world, who spend most of their time in a building with their face up against a screen, they never have that experience to figure out where do I begin and end in relationship to the world, in relationship to the other, right? The other people in my life. And then how do I have the skills to connect with it if I don't even actually live in it? And I don't actually have the sensory, what we call sensory integration, experiences of bumping up against it right so that's that's like really charging stuff Andrew I don't know if that's kind of what you're looking for but what I loved about when I first started thinking about wilderness was what a way to restore early developmental experiences that these young people haven't ever had they haven't lived in the
0: natural world okay a lot there Thank you. No, I asked you to geek out, and you're 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 doing it. You're taking us there. This is good stuff. <laughs> um, all right, I have gone. For me, it's a bit of a journey. I a couple of years ago, I was like nothing, no screens, none of it. Get rid of it. I'm, I'm the wilderness guy, right? And I've started to yeah. evolve as we've had conversations with people in our industry about young adults who struggle to make friends, who struggle to be social. That if you take away their phone entirely, or tell them to get off of it entirely you're removing a massive tool for them to start to connect and make friends. And so this is just becoming reality. It's becoming part of our world. And so I've gone from the whole like nothing at all to like, okay, let's find a, let's find a balance there. Have you got any ideas or um, tips or philosophies on what's appropriate, what's not, and, and what, what should our approach be with young people and emerging adults?
1: So, I, I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right that um, we, technology is here to stay and the way that we use it. And, and I kind of made a reference to this earlier on that COVID has actually shown me sort of that opposite side of this uh, same coin of what is detrimental about too much time online to some of the positive things. You know, I've, I've seen community in ways that I didn't think that our young people were capable of using on time, our online time to do. But there's a there's a different feature to what we're doing in COVID than to what most of our kids do with online time. So there's the how much, but then there's the what type, right, both are important. And then there's also how old are you when you are intersecting with these developmental experiences. So the, the first thing that I would say is that the amount of time, yes, it's important to connect with other people by using technology that is essentially devoid of what we call that right hemisphere of our brain, which is all visual, spatial, and nonverbal reasoning that allows us to read social cues, that requires really that we are in a three-dimensional world and able to sense one another's actual physical beings in order to have that full social developmental experience. You can get some of it on things like Zoom. You can't really get any of it on flat social media. Or YouTube, which is, you know, asynchronistic, which is what we call, you know, sort of something that's taped that we're not interacting with, which is the new terminology of, quote, distance learning in COVID time. That kind of flat, pre-taped, that's not an interactive moment. Or social media, which is all Instagram and pictures and maybe videos, and I'm swiping through it. Text messages, which are, as you know, kind of just words. And younger people in particular who are still very egocentric, meaning their interpretation of the world outside of them is that that world is occupied and concerned with the same things I am. That's what egocentrism means, right? So if I'm reading those flat words and those flat images through my own egocentric insecurities, I'm not learning the reciprocity of social and emotional relationships, or the the skills required to develop intimacy, right, which requires sort of that dynamic, constant, reciprocal feedback cycle. And then that's the nonverbal right brain stuff. So much of human connection is nonverbal, and we can't use nonverbal skills in that type Of medium. We just can't. We can a little bit in things like Zoom. Like I'm watching that happen and it's really cool but I but I'm also aware of what we miss on Zoom, what we miss on that flat video, even if it is interactive. So it doesn't allow that young person to fire up that right hemisphere and we're actually seeing declines in nonverbal skills because we're trying to replace that three-dimensional natural world social interaction with that asynchronistic experience.
0: Great. Good stuff.
1: So I didn't, I I didn't give you the, like, you cannot have more than two hours, but Mm -hmm. I'd kind of be making it up. But I would say like, yeah, two hours, that seems like plenty for, you know, the 12 year old mind. You know, a little less than that for the nine-year-old mind, and even less than that for the little kiddo who's figured out his mommy's iPhone.
0: And I loved how you said, you know, what they're doing, right? There's, There's a difference between a Zoom call with grandma, maybe, and watching a cartoon or a YouTube video um and i i do think we are seeing that in covid right um we're we're having to be creative on how to interact with each other and those zoom calls are helping a ton for us to feel community for us to continue relationship in in a way we are forced to not do it face-to-face um okay so let's take it to the next sort of area and that is is education um whether you want to go higher education or education in general um, what's going on right now? What are, what should we anticipate um, developmentally with education and what has happened in, in coronavirus times? Um, what's our new normal going to look like? And what's the education experience going to look like as we get out of this? I, I asked you like five questions in one. I realize that, but um, I just, totally, like I just want to totally point you goal. in a direction and, and yeah. let you go.
1: Yeah. Well, you can redirect me if I if I go astray. Um, So, there are obvious implications for what's happening with learning. You know, we're not learning as much. Uh, We're not able to use the types of um, methodologies that push deeper critical thinking and problem solving skills because we just don't have the same type of access Uh, limited time, limited circumstances, certainly limited oversight in terms of making sure students are engaged and parents are doing their best, but they're working full time, etc. So should we be worried as a society in terms of what the longer effects of missed learning? Definitely. Um, And it's kind of analogous to those missed developmental skill acquisition of, of those types of skills that I was talking about on the developmental continuum. They have longer term effects if you're not building foundational skills now, if you're not really pushing to wire that brain for higher order kinds of problem solving later, we're gonna see the implications of this. We're gonna see the ripple effects of this for sure. And it's going to show up everywhere. It's gonna show up academically, it's gonna show up socially, it's gonna show up emotionally. And as a society, we've gotta get real about it for sure. I think the other part of it, though, is is more optimistic because, um, like I said, as a developmentalist, we like to see things through the lens of opportunity and, and, again, that organismic power to grow and to adapt. So one of the things sort of related to the earlier point we were talking about is this type of learning has not only been sort of a, a replacement for, well, we can't see grandma in real time, we can't hug her, we can see her online. We're taking adolescents, we're taking middle schoolers, certainly college age young adults who are really used to having interaction online only through these asynchronistic means, right? Through these through the Insta- Instagram, through you know SMS, and through that sort of flat non- um, Three dimensional way of interacting with one another, and and uh, distance learning is forcing them to do things that they don't like to do. They don't like to talk on the phone. They don't like to see each other um, by Facetime, even right. They'd rather not. Mm-hmm. So that part's actually good. And if you want to be using screen time to do that type of interacting it's not as powerful developmentally as being in the presence of each other but it's preferable to what they have been doing and it isn't just learning in terms of missed content you know if I don't have my pre-algebra down I'm not going to do well in algebra it's also really about the, you know this opportunity for a number of the areas that I was hoping to get into my blog series about but things like boredom. COVID is actually an opportunity for kids to have to be bored. Being bored is a good thing. It really literally teaches the brain that low arousal does not mean that you are depressed or sick or that something is wrong. It means that you need to restart yourself And essentially it hardwires what we call initiation of tasks, which is really important in life and something that a lot of our young people don't have because they don't know how not to be stimulated. So there's a learning opportunity that COVID is giving many families if they're controlling screen time, right? And one that we could harness or uh, more parents are playing board games, problem solving, super awesome things to do that we don't do enough of anymore. Um, Some people are actually taking out their chessboard. That's really good for your brain to do that type of thing. Trivial pursuit, all of those kinds of things are sort of not in our everyday scrambled life where kids are online and everybody else is running around um, too busy. Uh, All of that matters. And even just reading, you know, we don't, read and, and it's not about having a good vocabulary for the SAT, it's not about being more cultured or sounding better, it literally is about developing language, which opens up the brain's neurocognitive centers for problem solving, and it makes you able to solve problems across domains, intellectual, social, emotional, global, right, so, there are some really good things that could be happening in COVID, but I'm afraid that the regular continuum of pre-K through undergraduate is going to experience a really big disruption. And as a society, I hope we won't just try to skip over it and leave it behind because it's going to be too expensive.
0: You know, I love, one day I was talking to my mom, she's Silent Generation, and we were talking about this very thing. And she said, you know, when I missed the bus in high school and she grew up on a farm in rural, rural Utah. Um, she said, I had to f- get a ride. I had to figure it out. No phone, not even a pay phone. I had to get home and there, it was up to me to figure out how to get home. And she said that happened all the time. And, and that problem solving, the need to problem solve on a daily basis like that is, is deteriorated with the technologies. And, um, I know with my twins who are now pushing two, they're probably going to hate my guts. But I, even at two, I'm like, figure it out. You know, they're reaching for their water, and you know, obviously, I'm very helpful and nurturing to my children. But you know, when they're whining and reaching their arms out for something they can do, I'm like, figure it out. And I'm, yeah. I, you know, yeah. um, that to me is very important developmentally, is in what I want to hope to instill in my children. The rest, w- school will take care of, but I want my kids to be problem solvers. I want them to be like, how am I going to do this? And be like, I don't know. You got this, though. Figure it out. So anyway.
1: Well, I'm no, I think that's big, Andrew. And I don't think that, you know, you even maybe not knowing it, but you kind of cast that in moral terms. Like, hey, doesn't mean I'm not nurturing. Actually, you're being really nurturing by helping your kids there's this nerdy thing that by Gotsky, who is a huge developmental psychologist and educator, it's called the zone of proximal development. And essentially what it means is you need to move that water bottle, metaphorically, a little bit farther away so that you're now asking your child to solve that problem. It's not too far away to crush the child, but it's far enough away so that his brain has to start firing. So he has to essentially learn to be resourceful, to calm his emotions, to access his reasoning centers, to figure it out. The other best metaphor for it is riding a bike. You run next to your child as he's learning to ride a bike. You don't let him fall all the way. If you do let him fall, you know he's not going to really hurt himself, but how can he experience what it means to be imbalanced and rebalance himself if you don't give him that zone of development? to essentially acquire that skill. So no, you're not being mean. You're actually okay. being a good teacher and a good parent.
0: Okay, we got this documented. And I'm gonna, <laughs> Sarah has stamped the approval. Um, actually, it was really cool because um, I was peeling oranges for my kids a couple of weeks ago. I'd become Mr. Mom in this COVID a little bit. And finally one day I was like, peel your own orange. And I pulled off the top and they both peeled their oranges and ate them it was a mess, but they were busy for 20, 30 minutes. And so that's kind of my thing is I pop the top off and then I kind of help them and they do the rest. Well, yesterday, my wife, Megan gave, um, Annie, our little daughter, an orange and we didn't pop the top off. Right. We didn't help her get it started and threw them in the car, got to my sister's house. And I look in the back, orange peels and the orange was gone. She did it all on her own. It was rad. I was like, okay, hey, Every chance I get, I'm going to try to expect more. And developmentally, it's a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. And you know what, Andrew? You just described wilderness therapy. It's <laughs> literally, that's what you just did. I'm not, I'm, I mean, I am kind of being funny, but I mean, of course, I'm a very funny person, but I wasn't aiming <laughs> at being too, too funny then. What I'm really trying to tell you is your kids had a sensory experience of what it means to peel an orange. To feed themselves. They smelled it. They felt it. They worked through it. That's exactly what you ask young adults to do at Pure Life. You know, right. feel the, feel the world under your feet, right? You know, see that space between you and that task that you're trying to achieve. Smell it, integrate it experientially. You will learn it, your brain will hardwire it. You could have given your kids a YouTube about how to peel an orange, 100%. And that is the metaphor for what we're talking about. Your twins just had an experience that is now integrated and automated in their skill set versus I watch something, it has no relevance for me, I didn't experience it, therefore I'm going to walk away and I have not mastered that skill.
0: Cool. Cool. This is fun. And, and time's flying. So I want to keep us rolling. Higher education. I see this as a big problem in the, the young people that we're working with. It starts at kindergarten. There's a stress level the getting into the right school and getting the right grades and getting to, taking the right tests. So you can get into the best colleges. What are your thoughts on all of that? And where are we going wrong? And what are we doing right? And what, where is this going to go? What's the change that needs to happen?
1: Oh, wow. I've been, you know, I'm, I'm like your mom's age. So I've been, I've been thinking about this problem for a really long time, like decades. Uh, and, and I think we've been talking about it as the same type of problem for a really long time. But I think young people are reacting to it in, in more dramatic ways that undermine their health more significantly than used to happen. And I think a lot of it is, you know, again, to frame this developmentally, that there's this idea from the time that they're young, that they are supposed to be something. And we also have a lot of really good parents of uh, families that we would send to a place like Pure Life of young adults who have internalized a message somewhere, not from their parents. And their parents may even have been trying to be the corrective to that message, Mm -hmm. but they can't win. Right. And so again, this idea that from a very early age, I have tried to bump into my parents have set it up so that I am going to bump into these boundaries that are going to test my theories, I'm going to discover, because I'm young, that the world doesn't work like I think it's supposed to. My logic is somewhat flawed, so I am going to adapt to the way the world is supposed to happen. So one of the big things that's supposed to happen in middle school and high school is we're supposed to bump into things and discover, I'm not good at that, but I'm good at this. I am actually not just good at this but I feel sensory feeling right experiential feeling good when I do that thing that I'm good at those are developmental opportunities that kids don't have anymore because they're supposed to be good at everything all the time and yes it's cliche to say that we don't let them fail but the other thing Andrew we don't let them do is succeed and when I say succeed I don't mean achievement, external achievement like A's, right, or trophies, right? What I mean is I accomplished something that was really hard and the process gave me gratification and I'm really proud of it and I can understand what I was good at in doing it. I pushed through things that, again, I didn't have in that little zone of, you know, proximal zone of development. I did not have those skills when I started out. I developed them all over the time. And I see I'm bigger, better, stronger now. We don't let them do that. Like we don't let them succeed. We're so afraid of letting them fail. We don't actually let them succeed. So when they show up at college, they don't know what they're good at. They don't know what they like. I always tell this story. Um, I don't do very much direct college counseling anymore with kids, but Uh, not all that long ago, there's a very elite all girls school in Boston. uh, And uh, I used to work with a lot of their very uh, high flying, super smart girls who are also really, really anxious. That was sort of my girl. And my first meeting, I would um, try to get them just to recognize I'm here. I'm in relationship with you. I care about you. My job is to help you become the best you. Let me help you. So I would ask them, tell me what you love. And they would literally look at me. A lot of times their hands would be shaking. And they had one girl say to me, honestly, Andrew, she said, tell me what I'm supposed to love. Wow. Yeah. So if, if everything is this, if we're still allowing them to have this external abstract idea of what they are supposed to be without experiencing who they actually are along the way to getting there, they are not going to be able to adapt to the fact that, wow, life is not what I thought it was going to be because they were supposed to have experienced that a hundred times before they got to college. Wow.
0: Yeah. It's, it's supposed to be messy, right?
1: Yeah. And it's not messy, like ugly messy. That's like beautiful messy. Again, you know, this is, if you, if just to get super clinical in the world of psychology, when we start talking about really the emergence of severe mental illness in young adulthood, or even the emergence of what we call the personality disorders, or the access to characterological disorders, which really mean that personality functioning is gonna be distorted kind of the rest of their lives. When we start talking about that, that's a lack of what we call adaptive skills. The capacity to adapt is probably the most important Developmental skill of any in terms of the ability to be happy, fulfilled, intimate with another human being, because it allows you to absorb disappointment and turn it into something else. Right. And if we don't ever allow them to adapt because we're not ever allowing them to be successful in the face of failure, then they show up at 21 and they're supposed to just like be able to do it with no practice no practice for those first 18 years. No wonder they show up with you guys. But the cool thing is they get to live in the natural world and redo those skills that they didn't get to acquire earlier. That's the beauty of wilderness for real.
0: And it happens fast, right? That's what I love about what we do um, is I'll see those changes in three, four, six, eight, ten weeks. You'll see a, a young person now with Really strong adaptive skills, right? Um, okay. And a long and a long road to go ahead, but still, like, it's not all over. It's not game over. It's not. You're not broken. You're not destroyed for life. It's like, dude, look how much you just accomplished. Not what we did with you, but what you accomplished in our program in that time. Dude, would you would you put adaptive skills in synonymous with self-efficacy? Because self-efficacy is the word that I use a lot, but I love. The word adaptive skills. How do those two correlate? I I
1: think that I think that's a great way to kind of certainly frame some of what adaptive skills are. I mean, I think certainly, um, and you may mean it this way, but but what what we want to see with adaptive skills is I can adapt. And again, if we go back to human development as being sort of an organismic process, every time you take a hit as an organism, essentially, if you think about like a small wound, your body does everything in its power to rush to it and heal it and put it back together, right? And that's that's your body activating all of its functions in order to heal and recover, right? When we don't ever allow our body to take a hit, then we never even know how to activate those those functions. So I think, yeah, that, that aligns beautifully with self-efficacy. I think part of adaptive skills too, though, are the, you know, the ability to integrate real sadness, grief, trauma, disappointment. And some people sadly have so much more of that than others, but the ability to integrate it is so critical in, in adaptive skills. So adaptive skills certainly are about, you know, Hey, turning you know, terrible experiences into the the capacity to experience beauty and joy and, and intimacy. But then there's also the adaptive skill to just be able to sit with just tragedy, just incredible suffering and sadness and not, you know, I use the term not quote swipe off of it because that's what our kids are doing. They are metaphorically and literally when something is uncomfortable for them or uninteresting to them, they just swipe off of it. And adaptive skills means like I can sit here and I can face that really bad, horrible thing that's happening in my life because we're, we're, none of us in the end will, will avoid that. None of us.
0: Beautiful. Let's switch gears one more time. Developmentally, how I want to talk about development and cannabis use. Oh, you boy. and I both yeah. know that a large... Group of young people that we're working with are smoking a ton of cannabis. It's becoming legal, and there's a lot of talk around, you know, addictive or not. And, you know, I mean, there's, this is a very large conversation. I want to understand developmentally what's going on with young people who are smoking a lot of cannabis or using a lot of cannabis in, in different forms.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, it's, you know, you can't keep up with it. It's so crazy. You know, it's all the, it's all the, the, I guess when I get morally outraged, I'm morally outraged at this particular um, industry and just also just the delivery mechanisms, you know, in terms of the monetization, um, you know, the consumerism around those where we just don't have any conscience as a society that, you know, we're really, really hurting human beings. So if you kind of take the combination of the other stuff that the right hemisphere of the brain does besides uh, really be able to um, uh, non-verbally solve problems, create connection, uh, it, it does things like essentially manage time and space. And so, so many kids that you see show up at, at, your, at, at Pure Life, there are already kids who are, a lot of them are executively dysfunctional meaning that they just have very poor right hemispheric abilities to manage time. And that floods them and gets them overwhelmed and gets them anxious. And so what do they do? They smoke weed to feel better, right? Mm -hmm. And then what does weed do? Weed inhibits their ability to access their reasoning centers, which makes them essentially less capable to do what they already were not very capable of doing, which makes them then more anxious And then, as you know, depression quickly follows on the heel of anxiety. So it essentially is the very very thing that makes them so powerfully feel better in a moment undermines their cognitive development and their mental health. And, And not in small ways, in really big, impactful ways. And in ways also that sadly don't lend themselves to cell recovery or cognitive functional restoration these are gains that that are lost for good and so it, particularly at high high rates of use and everybody knows there's more THC and we're beginning to see kids who never would have had a psychotic break now start to show up looking like they may end up being bipolar 1 you know the the human psyche can only handle so much trauma and when it's starts out that I'm anxious because I can't figure out how to initiate tasks because my right hemispheric functions are already depressed. I'm, I have ADHD. I, I, I can't manage time well. And th- this is making me all extremely anxious. So now I'm going to smoke weed, and that's going to further diminish my cognitive functioning. I'm not a big hyperbole guy Andrew but it's just criminal to me it's criminal as a society that we think that that's okay we would be flipping out if we thought kids were just you know getting up every morning and drinking a fifth of tequila right you know yes we, we had there may be some double standard around the legalization of alcohol and I'm not again at a moral level opposed to weed being legal but just like a technology our policies our regulations our public health Knowledge about the deleterious effects that are really long-lasting to children and young young adults—it's—it's it's just very disturbing, and and I don't I I don't know how else to say it because it, it's it really it's one of those things that morally outrages me.
0: Yeah, what would you say to the parent or the young person that says, you know? Hey, I'm probably smoking a little too much, but it's pretty harmless. Lots of people do this, and can manage it just fine. What What do you say to that young person that shows up in your office? That's like, I don't see the big deal. It's pot. It's legal. It's it's it makes me feel more calm. I'm able to you know um, deal with life better. Uh, what do you say?
1: Well, I mean, look, I mean, I I'm I come from a generation that honestly did believed that weed was not addictive, that honestly believed that weed could not and did not cause lung cancer. I mean, there's this mystique around this drug that has been going on for decades that I don't fully understand. But it's a little bit like the social media. It's not just how much, it's what type right and how mm-hmm. much goes into that type it's also the mechanism of delivery but look like there are just really good medical studies that are just have come out within the last five years longitudinal studies which were lacking for a very long time because the government had such a kind of moral um, objection to weed that it refused to study it or refused to sub to essentially fund studies of weed but now we have longitudinal data that shows us the damage that is done cognitively to to growth in adolescence even recreational use which is defined as two to three times a week is has long term effects in males in their full brain development by the age of 26 so it's nothing to mess around with and again i have no moral objection to it but it is the it, the messaging about it is so confusing the commercialization of it and the accessibility. And, you know, I I grew up at a time where Camel cigarettes were outlawed because they were being marketed to middle schoolers. Why aren't we equally outraged about this? I don't get
0: it. Yeah, Uh, we could go all day. And um, I think this is probably a good place for us to finish up. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion to just sort of bring it all full circle in terms of, you know, your blogs, what you're doing? I loved your blog that you shared with me or your okay boomer blog uh, that you did put out, I think was beautiful. You're a great writer. And you know, where, where do you hope to see the listeners of this podcast go with all of this information?
1: Well, you know, I love to say this, Andrew, that, um, I love the work I do. I know you love the work you do. And um, the other thing I, you know, I'm not into hyperbole and I'm a new Englander, so we don't flatter people. So don't take this as flattery. (laughs) Um, But, but, you know, you run a really top notch program. Uh, You've helped so many kids and so many families. And and there, I say, I say this a lot. I I tend to speak to quite a few schools and and boards of directors and, and education. And I say, look, there are two great correctives, and one of them is wilderness therapy and being in and really interacting with the natural world while you're in that social milieu with other people. And boarding school does that same thing. You know, learning has to take place in a social environment in order to maximize intellectual growth. It's just a fact, it's a research established fact. It's great correctives for what kids aren't getting. What I wanted to say was. As much as I love my job and you're so good at your job, I wish from our conversation today that both of us would be pushed out of business and we wouldn't have to do what we do anymore. And then I finally just want to make sure people understand, not because of COVID-19. I don't want to go out of business because of COVID-19. I want to go out of business because we're getting back to the principles of healthy human development.
0: Awesome. Where can people find you?
1: Um, you know, normally I'm in the back bay of Boston, Massachusetts, but, um, in this day and age, it's not a very safe or healthy place to be. Um, definitely it's my hometown, but, um, you can just find me at McMillanEducation.com. And, uh, right now I'm looking at the Atlantic ocean and the Southern part of Maine and, and very grateful.
0: Awesome. Sarah, I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate your time and look forward to more conversations about this as we go. I think there's a lot of great information on this, so I really appreciate it.
1: Well, keep doing all your good work, Andrew. Certainly appreciate it. Have those babies and clean those sneakers. (laughs) Catch you later.
0: Hey, guys. Thanks again for joining this episode of In the Trenches with me, your host, Andrew Taylor. If you like what you're hearing, I would love it if you would subscribe to my podcast. You can find me on iTunes and SoundCloud. It's In the Trenches with Andrew Taylor. So thanks for joining and hope to see you next time.